Welcome to Muskelt, and my name is Rosie Mead. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Michael Cronin, the Department of English in Maynooth University. Our conversation primarily focused on Michael's book, Sexual Liberation, that was published by Cork University Press in autumn 2022. In that book, Michael analyzes cultural images of and ideas about sexuality, desire and the gay man that circulate in contemporary Irish society and what those images and ideas tell us about existing and alternative political imaginaries. We discuss Michael's use of the keywords equality, vulnerability, revolution, liberation and hope to structure the book's contents and arguments. Leo Varadkar's election as Taoiseach in 2017 and the figure of the homo hero as discussed in sexual liberation were were explored in our conversation. Michael also spoke about why he distinguishes between sexual equality or freedom and liberation. Our interview explored the contradictory aspects of marriage equality and of identity and identity politics. And finally, we concluded with Michael's thoughts on if and how an acknowledgement of our shared vulnerability might generate new possibilities for hope and solidarity. Welcome, Michael, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, Rosie. You're very, very welcome. Michael, your book is called Sexual Liberation. And as I mentioned already, it's coming out in the autumn as part of the Shearock series at Cork University Press. And this is where I'm going to have to declare my own interest because I am one of the editors of the Shearock series. Mm. And I, without a hint of bias, I can also say it's a fantastic book. It's a fantastic reflection on sexual politics and equality politics in contemporary Ireland. One of the kind of really original features of the book is that it's organized as a series of essays that are kind of centered around keywords. And those keywords are equality, vulnerability, revolution, liberation, hope. And so I'd be interested to hear, first of all, how would you describe the overall aim and purpose of the book and why you were motivated to write it? And also then why you took that particular approach, that distinctive approach to organizing it and structuring it? Okay, well, thanks very much for uh, for what you said about the book. I really appreciate it, Rosie, and also I appreciate your uh, your, your your colleagues' work in editing it. And the initial spur, actually, for writing it, I might as well say, was sitting in the garden during the summer of twenty eighteen, uh, reading Heather uh, Laird's volume in the series on commemoration, and it was one of those experiences of your own kind of incoherent sort of responses to something that had been going on sort of obviously in my head during those years of the commemoration as suddenly being given the sort of brilliant incisive kind of coherent expression and so at the time I was um, I was working on this book that you mentioned Revolutionary Bodies that came out in the spring that's a book on homoeroticism in Irish fiction and there I was sort of developing those ideas that are in sexual liberation within the framework of a work of literary criticism and work that I suppose is more sort of conventionally academic. And so I was excited by the idea of a kind of parallel project in which some of the conceptual and political arguments in that, in revolutionary bodies, could be kind of sort of disconnected from the literary criticism from the study of the novels and could be distilled into this different format. Um, and, and I kind of liked the format as well, a kind of a book that was still scholarly, but with some of the kind of conventions of academic writing loosened a bit, so giving you a bit more sort of freedom to be a bit more speculative, a bit more polemical. And looking back now, I also realised that the two referendums on marriage equality in 2015 and repealing the Eighth Amendment in 2018 were important prompts 
So they were important events in themselves, of course. They were also important as kind of signifiers or kind of representing kind of these larger historical developments. They represented these two allied social movements that have powerfully mobilised several generations of Irish people um, since the 1970s. The uh, lesbian and gay and early LGBT movement and, of course, the feminist movement. Obviously, the feminist movement has a much longer history going back as well to the early 20th and late 20th century. 19th century. So after the 2018 referendum, it seemed to me a good time to sort of pause and to ask, well, now that these specific political objectives, marriage equality and repealing the eighth have been achieved, what sort of transformative or revolutionary political vision could that that mobilisation of people? I mean, it was clear how people were mobilised around those referendums. Well, if we could, if we could sort of get that same sort of sense of energy mobilisation, but for some different purposes, what might that look like? And obviously, I'm not arguing that everything was somehow, you know, um, uh, sorted out in 2015 and 2018. We've had lots of evidence over the last few months of you know, homophobia and transphobia still exist in Ireland. They haven't been eradicated by the referendum in 2015. Governments compromise with a religious order over the running of the. National Maternity Hospital illustrates the various limitations of the post-referendum uh, legislation and abortion access and so on. Uh, you know, reproductive justice has not been fully achieved for Irish women. But, but those questions, are, are, are they're political in the sense of, um, I suppose, of policy, which, of course, not definitely not unimportant, but they're not sort of political in the sense of a kind of vision around which people can mobilise. But the... They, they were, as it were, sort of negative achievements. And I definitely don't mean by that negative in the sense of being bad or wrong or unimportant, far from it. I mean negative in a very precise sense. They were about confronting and changing oppressive structures and barriers that were there, that were in place already. So, for instance, so long as the Eighth Amendment was there in the Constitution, feminist mobilisation around reproductive justice was always, in a sense, constrained. It had to fight on this territory that wasn't of its own choosing. It had been, you know, set by all these evil-minded creeps back in 1983. And so long as it was there, it was still sort of fighting on the territory that wasn't, that it hadn't chosen. So in the wake of the referendum, it seemed like a good time to stop and think about, well, what might a, a sort of more positive vision of sexual freedom look like? Instead of thinking about freedom from these constraints that were there already, might we speculate about sort of freedom as such, as it were? Um, so, in a way, I suppose the categories then of which the book is divided, as you mentioned, um, it seems to be they're good categories for thinking about, for trying to reframe that relationship between politics and sexuality, to sort of rethink the type of demands and objectives around which we might, we might uh, mobilise. Um, and in a way, in fact, just briefly here, I might sort of a digression to say that some of the unresolved policy issues, as I'm describing them, illuminate, I think, the direction which it would be useful to take towards a more expansive and a more kind of universalist political vision. So, for instance, in terms of trans rights, the Gender Recognition Act in 2014 was important, but there are still very serious issues about access to medical services and the sort of support services trans people need to transition. And likewise, the Eighth Amendment is done, but there are still significant problems uh, with with accessing abortion services. In both of those cases, solving those problems aren't just about addressing misogyny and homophobia. They're also asking other types of questions 
about, for instance, what would a properly run humane health service in a civilised democracy look like? You know, proper access to those services, trans people and the services, trans people in need and abortion services, they will never be achieved within the sort of health system we have now. You know, it's two-tiered, founded on the ability to pay rather than need and so on. And that will only come about through a kind of radical and revolutionary transformation of the whole social order. So we can sort of see there, the sort of move I'm getting, it's, these are very specific issues, but they can really only be solved with a sort of a transformative political vision. So the categories then, as you mentioned, one is equality. Obviously, equality has been hugely important, hugely productive, um, particularly for LGBT politics. Um, it's there in the phrase that was used in the campaign in 2015 was about marriage equality. So it seems really useful then to start thinking about what a radical transformative sexual politics might look like by starting to think about that word equality, that concept equality, thinking about the contradictions of that word right now. So on one hand, it's a concept that has to be always essential to any radical transformative politics. You've got to believe in it. And at the same time, even while we have to believe in it, we also have to confront the fact that in the world we exist in now, and so you know, under the kind of the dominant political system right now, that word that we cherish so much, that concept, equality, has been sort of devalued and uh, instrumentalized in so much contemporary political our neoliberal political discourse. Okay, it's been sort of subverted by being kind of this instrumental contractual idea of equality. It's often used paradoxically as a way of legitimizing inequality. I think those of us who work in universities are familiar with that, or universities, you make a great fuss about being committed to the idea of equality and then they you know, pay people, their occasional staff, really badly. So they're, you know, reproducing inequality. So that's one word. Equality seems an important word to sort of think through. It's so kind of central, as I say, we sort of value it. And at the same time, it has, some, it has been sort of so kind of subverted and changed and turned into something else. And then the concept of liberation is a useful one because, um, well, for one reason, I think it was so essential and it was so um, important and it was so inspirational in the early days of second wave feminism and the early days of the lesbian and gay movement uh, in the 1970s. But then during the 1980s and 1990s, that sort of politically mobilizing idea of liberation got sort of superseded, as it were, by ideas like equality and uh, reform. So I was interested in a kind of interesting sort of paradox by kind of imaginatively going back to the past to the earlier point, and recuperating that idea, going back to the past in sort of an, a kind of productive way of moving into the future, but figuring, speculating about what a future revolutionary politics, sexual politics might look like, going back to the past seemed a good way of doing that. And revolution is the other word, the other concept, and it's very similar. It was a concept that in the early 20th century was so fertile, was so compelling, was so invigorating, was so mobilizing for so many people. The example that I discuss in some length in the book is Roger Casement. But in the same way, that idea of revolution came to be sort of undermined and subverted, came to be encountered, counter-revolutionary forces, by the, the reassertion of reactionary forces in Ireland, for instance, after 1922 and after partition. 
So there are the three concepts, equality, liberation, revolution, and why I think they're important to kind of work with and think through. The other two categories are what I'm terming, terming um, political affects. In other words, sort of affects that, that are sort of politically um, mobilizing and important. And the two that I'm focusing on are vulnerability and hope. Um, so hope is you know, essential to any liberationist or revolutionary politics. You've got to You've got to have hope that things can be changed uh, to work towards change. Um, and then vulnerability. Vulnerability seems important to me because it restores the human body and it restores human needs and it restores human needs uh, to our political imagination. So in conventional discourse, sexual politics means political action to regulate and control human sexuality. So conservative sexual politics strives to control our autonomy as sexual beings more tightly. And then a progressive sexual politics strives to um, lessen such control. So the book is proposing a different understanding of sexual politics. It's about mobilizing, not sort of mobilizing about sort of control over sexuality, but instead mobilizing around a sort of fundamental, fundamental similarity between these two things. The sexual and the political are most fundamentally, in the sort of most basic way, they're about human bodies and about human needs. They're both fundamentally affective. They're about feelings, emotions, pleasures, needs. Politics is, in a sense, about the best way to organize ourselves, to use the world's resources to fulfill our human needs. It's about conflict between different models for doing that. It's a conflict between a, you know, a model where the world's resources are are owned by a minority, are exploited for profit, or a model where you know, those resources are controlled collectively to fulfill human needs fairly and sustainably. And so the, the book then encourages us to move beyond the politics of identities and injuries, and we'll come back to some of those concepts maybe later, and to strive instead for a kind of for a politics that is universal and radically humanist in its scope and anti-capitalist and revolutionary in its uh, objectives. That's really fantastic, Michael. I think that like what I'm getting from you there is a kind of a sense that many of the kind of conventional understandings of equality and um, even social change are kind of straight-jacketed by convention. They're straight-jacketed by a very narrow set of expectation around what's possible. And that what you're effectively mm -hmm. trying to do in the book is to open them up again to kind of to yes. to release some of the kind of radical revolutionary liberatory potential within them. Um, so even like posing those words, I mean, posing the idea of revolution in a sense is a hopeful act in and of itself, isn't it? Because it's actually saying this thing that people write off, there is no alternative, etc. This is possible. And I think that you are making those arguments in a very deliberate way across the book. So it's really, really, it's really positive in sense of generating the possibility of hope that's also so fundamental to your argument. Yes. Um, maybe we'll go back and talk a little bit about the start of the book, because it starts at a very kind of interesting point in Irish history, and that's with the election in 2017 of um, Leo Varadkar to the position of Taoiseach. Um, now, in a sense, as a gay man being elected to that is a momentous occurrence in what many would see as been a, you know, like a, a kind of inherently conservative society. 
and it, it generated a huge amount of international attention and mm-hmm. um, with commentators talking about how this represented, you know, yet another step on Ireland's ongoing progressive journey, that it was possibly symbolic of our commitment to economic liberalisation, neoliberalism, globalisation, the maturity of our politics, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, there were also more critical accounts and more critical engagement with the, with the election of Rackard to the role of Taoiseach. And obviously, some of those were decidedly homophobic and, you know, hate oriented. But there were also critical accounts from the left and from critical commentators um, and from NGOs and activist groups. And I suppose that kind of generated some kind of tensions around how the gay male politician how mm. he is discoursed about, how he is discussed, how he is represented in public discourse. And you talk a little bit about that and you talk a little bit about those kind of conflicting kind of expectations and assessments of, of Radker, but also the gay male politician. And you introduced the figure of the homo hero. Um, mm. And I thought that was a really, really interesting concept. I hadn't come across it before, but it made a lot of sense. Would you mind talking us through what that figure of the ho- homo hero means, what that signifies what the homo here is supposed to do, um, and maybe also what are the kind of expectations and assumptions that surround the figure of the homo hero, you know, in terms of political life? Okay, grand. Uh, so, um, uh, yes, I, 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 I started with the figure of Leo Varadkar uh, for, for a number of reasons, because it sort of encapsulated or sort of distilled down in an interesting way some of the sort of larger um, uh Questions and also sort of the kind of the 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 sort of methodology of the book, as it were, sort of you know, um, thinking about contradictions because you say it was a sort of contradictory event that marked both progress, but also in some ways um, not progress, our conservatism, uh, and as you say, also it was about um, uh, these different kind of all these different sort of um, political perspectives often contradictory ideas and perspectives that adhere around the figure of the, the gay man in our culture. So maybe I'll just start with the homo hero idea. So first of all, I'm, 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 I'm drawing from my study of, um, of my thoughts on, on Leo Varadkar's media image. I was drawing a lot on uh, a study of it by uh, two colleagues, um, formerly from Anuth and, and still from Anuth, Mara Kerrigan and Maria Parmajore. Um, and so they are... Um, adopting this idea of the homo hero from others, other critics who are working, uh, looking particularly at American, the American politician Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg Mayor Pete, <laughs> I pronounce his surname, uh, and, and various others. So it's basically, it's a, it's, it's, it's a public figure who's openly gay or lesbian, primarily a political figure. Um, and so this figure is sort of homo hero. They're, well, the best way to describe it, I suppose, is that they're, they're heroic in a number of different ways. One way in which they're heroic is that they make the society as a whole, and in particular kind of liberal middle classes, I suppose, feel heroic about itself. So it can be a sort of, this figure can be a sort of source of self-satisfaction, as it were, for the society. Look at us with our gay Taoiseach, aren't we the best ever? Their heroism also, of those political figures, serves to obscure or mask their actual political position. So we focus on the courage and the bravery of being out, so we don't inquire into their actual political positions. Um, so we focus on symbolism and representation. We focus on the idea, what does be, having a gay theshik mean? We focus on the idea that it sort of symbolically makes our society more equal, 
but you don't actually pay attention then to the actual real-life Leo Varadkar and his actual policies, which might be producing widening inequality. And the homo-heroic homo story is also characteristically neoliberal in his politics because the focus is on um, individual achievement rather than on collective action and mobilization. So it is, in a sense, the LGBT equivalent of you know, lean-in feminism. So long as there are a few exemplary women or exemplary gay men or lesbians who are being visibly successful, we can be reassured that the objectives of liberal feminism or mainstream LGBT politics have been achieved. We don't have sort of have to worry about, you know, what's, how it is for the majority of people that those movements are giving expression to their needs. Um, but also, we, again, there's, as I say, that emphasis on the individual, the exemplary individual, rather than the sort of collective mobilization, collective action. And that, as I say, makes it exemplary uh, of the kind of neoliberal politics. Um, so I suppose I might just say something about why I chose to start with um, the Avarikar's election. As I say, it encapsulated or condensed some of the ideas, key ideas in the book. One is, as you say, that the image or the discursive figure Blunky term of the gay man is, is sort of such a charged one, I think, in our culture, such a spectrum of political standpoints and, and, and often contradictory ideas and concerns about the relationship between sexuality and politics cluster around that figure in our culture. And so it's a kind of first premise of the book, I suppose, that analysing how that discursive figure circulates in Irish culture right now is a useful way to help us think through those questions about sexuality and freedom and what a radical revolutionary sexual politics might look like. So it's not a, the book is not a book about gay men and their distinctive experiences. It's about how our culture thinks and feels about the gay man as a discursive figure. And as you say, the media reaction, the media response, um, or the response reported in the media or articulated through the media to Leah Varadkar's election as the first openly gay Taoiseach and also, of course, um, biracial coming from, you know, the son of an immigrant and so on. How this was sort of read and interpreted and spoken about encapsulates those ways. So one response, as you say, is the most straightforwardly kind of conservative, homophobic response. In the case of Leo Varadkar, this more came to the fore actually to uh, the year after his election, rather than the time of the election, this controversy, Maria, uh, about him going to, writing the letter to Kylie Minogue and going to the conference and her concert. And this was, you know, the coverage traded in these kind of homophobic, misogynistic stereotypes about gay men, about pop music, a sort of facile, about sort of fandom and so on. So that, you know, that kind of illustrates how in the homophobic conservative imagination, what the gay man presents, represents is a kind of threatening figure this figure who kind of potentially undermines the normative structures of gender and family and patriarchy, a figure who might, for instance, blur clear, clear, you know, clear lines of gender identity because of this unmanly investment in this very stylized form of femininity that's embodied in, in the persona uh, of a singing star like, like Kylie. So it's a threatening figure. And then, as you say, there was a kind of critical and um, I was disappointed perspective articulated by some um, LGBT political activists. This was uh, encapsulated in this great headline in GCN, uh, Lee Varadkar will be as helpful to the gays as Margaret Thatcher was to the women. To women. And so it's a kind of, 
oddly kind of inverted or mirror image of the homophobic response. It kind of suggests, yes, the homophobes are right. The discursive gay man does threaten the dominant gender and sexual order, and that's good, that's to be welcomed. It hurls imagination. So the disappointment then is that, well, here we have a gay man as politician. This, 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 this man should be, this figure should be, we're expecting this figure to be subversive, disruptive, destabilizing to the dominant order. Essentially all the things that Leo Bradker's, you know, politics are definitely not. So there's this kind of disappointment because there's a sort of hope invested in this figure. This figure will, as I say, represent uh, something disruptive, something destabilizing, would be an emancipatory figure. Um, again, I suppose come back to the sort of, it's a sort of version of the kind of homo heroic narrative. Even by even expressing disappointment that Leo Bradker is in some ways not homo heroic, is a suggestion that just by being a gay man, politicians should in some ways be radical or to the left and so on. Um, which, when you think about it, is sort of a slightly kind of odd expectation, and yet somehow we all still sort of have it. We we do have the idea that sort of experiences of being sort of marginalised. Show you know will make you progressive or radical, but you know all the experience, all, all history tells us that's not the case. And then there was this other perspective, often articulated from outside the country uh, by international media. This idea, well, this represents Ireland, another step in Ireland's modernisation, another step in Ireland's sort of progress, um, and also another step in Ireland kind of being a kind of modern, globalised country. So Time magazine put him on the uh, Leo Varadkar on the cover uh, and they took a phrase from one of his speeches that his election sort of cemented Ireland's place as an island at the centre of the world. So you say what's going on there is progressive social change is kind of somehow equated with neoliberal globalisation. So being open uh, to sexual diversity and other forms of diversity in your culture is kind of symbolically aligned with making your economy open to financialized, you know, global capital. It's sort of these two very different forms of openness are somehow, you know, equated as being the same thing. So in that discourse, the figure of the gay man is, of the homo hero is also a figure of hope, but of a different kind. So the disappointed LGBT activist, it's a figure that offers promises or should promise emancipation. And when it, you know, this figure turns up and isn't a, a figure committed to emancipation, there's disappointment. For something like the Time magazine article, the hope is not emancipation. It's not revolutionary transformation. It's the opposite. It's can we keep things stable? And the idea is that, well, these homoeroic figures, by including these homo heroes in the dominant order, we can kind of sort of, um, you know, there's a famous phrase from there's a phrase from a famous Italian novel, The Leopard. You know, everything everything was changed to say this, to stay the same, and that's the sort of idea. So, from that perspective, um, a kind of neoliberal perspective, the election of Leo Varadkar, in the way which was depicted in in the media outlets, illustrates, I suppose, how the objectives of the LGBT movement, freedom from oppression, discrimination, freedom from discrimination, full citizenship lesbian and gay people, how those, you know, emancipatory objectives have been successfully articulated into the objectives of capitalism. They're, they've ensured the stability and reproduction of the dominant order. 
if we can make that dominant order a bit more equal, a bit more diverse, a bit more inclusive, well, we can somehow manage to keep this, you know, clearly failing show on the road for another while. Mm-hmm. So that, as I say, I'm trying to is is, is why I, I I kind of started with with that because, as I say, it seems to encapsulate or raise some of the issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really fascinating like launch pad for, for the rest of your arguments. And I think also in what you're describing there, I suppose you're articulating just how like voracious neoliberal capitalism is. It can it can it can encompass mm. everything. You know, perhaps not class politics, that's perhaps the one kind of like realm of impossibility, but almost all other kind of political movements can be incorporated within it in some shape or form. Do you mean you know? And that's I mean, and that's in some senses the kind of the tragedy. I mean, from a liberal perspective, it's the kind of the opportunity. But I suppose from a more radical and more liberation perspective, it's part part of the tragic element. Um and maybe as I've mentioned that word liberation, we might go return to it a little bit. The the, I suppose what you're doing in the book, I think, is you're differentiating this idea of sexual liberation and you're talking perhaps how that was even a term that was used previously, but it's mm-hmm. not used so much now, mm-hmm. from the more dominant objective of contemporary Ireland, which is achieving sexual equality. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're saying is that's occurring within the context of a grossly unequal sec- and social order still. Yeah. And in the book, your your title is sexual liberation with a kind of a slash between the two words. And my sense is maybe that the backslash is really asking us to try to think critically about what is the connection between those two words? You know, yeah. do they do they naturally follow from each other? Are they the same? Are they different? Like, what is the connection? So perhaps maybe a little bit more would be worth hearing a little bit about this word liberation. How do you understand that word liberation? Mm. What does it mean for you, like in the context of the book, but poli- and, and also politically? And why do you think it's so urgent? And perhaps again, maybe emphasizing within that, like how it differed from sexual equality and freedom. Grand. Yes. Okay. Well, I suppose the first, the, the, the simplest way of putting it is um, that to differentiate sexual equality or sexual freedom as objectives from sexual liberation. Sexual equality or sexual freedom, as we conventionally understand them, their political objectives can be pursued within the, the existing social order, within the order that we live in, liberal capitalist uh, or capitalist liberal democracy. So equality and freedom uh, are about removing, as sort of they're understood, or have been pursued by these social movements, are about removing the barriers, the obstacles, to full citizenship within the current political and economic structures. They're about making people's lives more livable, as Judith Butler uh, would put it, within the existing liberal capitalist order. And actually, I think one of the sort of challenges when trying to think about a radical form of sexual politics is to understand and appreciate the historical necessity and the historical achievements of those political movements mobilised around those objectives, um, liberal feminism, mainstream or reformist, LGBT politics and so on. And for someone like me, that also includes you know, acknowledging my own personal indebtedness to the achievements of those movements. But at the same time, it's about developing, developing a radical sexual politics requires you know, confronting the limitations and the contradictions of that reformist position. And as we were saying with, when we were discussing the election of, of, of Leo Varadkar as Thichuk, the central paradox is, in a sense, that by successfully making a capitalist order that is ineradicably, ineradicably patriarchal, misogynistic, and homophobic, 
And I say in a radical book to emphasize that, you know, you can't have a capitalism without patriarchy and misogyny and homophobia. They are constituent parts of it. But by making that order sort of more livable, those movements sort of stabilized and reproduced it. So this is a sort of, I guess, tragic paradox that they get stuck on, because of course, absolutely, you can understand you know, how those movements mobilize to make people's lives you know, livable, to make, get people you know, freedom from discrimination. It was a very urgent, necessary thing to do. But then it also helped to cement, as it were, stabilize and reproduce the very society that was discriminating against people. So, now, liberation then, um, in contrast, was liberation will require the creation of an entirely different social it can never be achieved within the structures of a capitalist, imperialist, patriarchal order. And since we currently live in those structures, it's difficult for us to imagine what it will be like. We can't really know what liberation is because we can't tell what it will be like because how can we tell from within the structures of consciousness and social relations that we currently live within? That also, of course, makes it a bit, um, feel a bit risky and scary. And it's also, of course, why I say liberation will require, because we have to talk about it in the future tense rather than, you know, what it is now. Also, liberation, this point, I guess, I, I feel quite, quite strongly about it, it will require a new social order, structures of relationship, but also new forms of consciousness, entirely new forms of social relations, entirely different ways of inhabiting our bodies. So coming back to what you were saying about the the, 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 the the title and the slash, in a way, strictly speaking, the phrase sexual liberation is in a sense sort of meaningless, or more accurately, it's an impossibility. First of all, because it suggests some sort of autonomous realm of our life that we can mark off as sexual, that is something that is like separate from, for instance, our lives as workers. And it suggests that in that sphere of our life, the sexual, we might achieve liberation but somehow not elsewhere. But liberation, by definition, will require dismantling all those kind of distinctions, all those binaries, distinctions between different types of human relationships, those that are intimate and sexual, and then other type political relationships, friendship and so on. So it involves getting rid of those distinctions between different types of human relations, between different types of pleasures, between labour and leisure, between the public and the private, between the economic and the social, between zones of our bodies that are sexual and zones of our bodies that are non-sexual, between our bodies and our minds. So in, in essence, then sexual liberation in a kind of within a, a capitalist order where the meeting of all our human needs, the full range of our human needs, is still subordinated to profit, sexual liberation in that context would be meaningless. So in a sense, sexual liberation is a kind of misnomer, which I put in the slash to kind of provoke us to think about it. Because in a sense, Liberation will in some ways involve us abandoning the very concept of the sexual or, the sex, or, or sexuality. It will involve developing new ways of conceptualizing our bodies as sites of needs and pleasures, new modes of conceptualizing and living out our human relations. And will require abandoning, also of course, will require abandoning sexual identities. And identities, many of us are deeply attached to them, politically and affectively. Um, and again, reminding us that imagining, you know, this currently unknowable liberation can be kind of scary and alarm, 
an army. Um, and I want to sort of raise one idea there when I talk about sort of the liberation will require the leaving behind, as it were, the moving beyond identities. There's an interesting idea that I, I, I kind of discuss a little bit in the book. I can't remember if I go into that much. But anyway, it's this idea of disidentification. That's a concept that the late um, Jose Esteban Munoz and also Rosemary Hennessy have written about. So it's kind of... Um, can I, I like sort of contradictions and paradoxes and holding two <laughs> opposed thoughts in your head bring, at the same bring time. Bring them on. They're very <laughs> <Yeah>. welcome here. <laughs> um, so on one hand, we live in the world that we live in. We live in the kind of, in, in the society with its ideologies and with its structures where we kind of need identities. Identities, having identities, using identities, they allow us to be recognised as people, as subjects. They allow us to have livable lives, as it were livable psychically, socially, culturally, political, politically, okay? So we, as, as things stand, we kind of need them to operate. But at the same time, even while we need them to operate, that doesn't mean we can't sort of stop and do a bit of sort of work emotionally and intellectually on them, on sort of developing some kind of, kind of critical distance from them, um, from those identities that we inhabit. So even while we inhabit them, we can still have a bit of distance from them. We can do some work to understand you know, how those identities came about, how they emerged historically, how they emerged out of oppression and out of the resistance to oppression, how people made them, but, you know, as Marx wrote about history, not in conditions of their own choosing. So we can still maintain our kind of attachment to those identities because it's, it's necessary. Um, but at the same time, in another part of our mind, we can kind of think of them as, as provisional, as, you know, rather than necessary. They're, they're, they're necessary, I should say, to function, but they're not essential. We use them rather than they being us, as it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's really interesting. And I think there's quite a profound challenge in what you're talking about there, because I think that, like, in terms of how you talk about, like, sexuality, and you're sort of saying that, that we need to maybe kind of, like, break down that kind of category, and we, and we need to kind of, like, kind of, like, reimagine, you know, you know, a world without that category and without the kind of the the sort of closed offness that it might that, that might yeah. be associated with it. But on the other hand, for many people, that the assertion of that identity, the assertion of that category, has been a cornerstone of self empowerment, as you say, of recognition, of visibility within the kind of the wider sphere. And I think one of the interesting points that you make in the book, and I think it's really, really thoughtful, thoughtfully explored in the book, is where you talk about how there's a kind of a conventional understanding of sexuality as kind of natural or a kind of a basic instinct or mm -hmm. basic desires. And I'm thinking of the Lady Gaga song, kind of like born this way as a kind of, a, you know what I mean? Like this is the kind of key to, mm -hmm. this is why you need to recognize me and see me in the world. Yes, yes, is, yes. You know, yes. I'm born this way. And it's powerful and, and, it, and it works right. and it works for many people. It's been a kind of a, a key towards a kind of a, you know, a liberation in the context of their own family and their own kind of relationships. But what you, you I suppose, what you contrast with that with is a more kind of materialist understanding of, of, of sexuality. So you talk about sexuality as, um, I suppose, linked to it's social, it's interrelational, it's profoundly shaped by capitalism. So you talk about sexuality as being something which is constituted in a relationship with society, culture, the economy, politics, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I think that's a really, really interesting discussion. And you've, you've already hit on some of elements of that, but would you like to talk a little bit more about that, that kind of idea of the kind of materialist view of sexuality and sexual identity and how maybe the ideas of Herbert Marcuse and Rosemary Hennessy in kind of particular have kind mm-hmm. of been kind of brought to bear on how you talk about that in the context of... Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I agree absolutely with what you, what you said there, Rosie. I think you've sort of articulated really... Um, convincingly how um, how these ideas, how these notions, concepts of identity, um, and I mean the whole, I suppose, premise of the book is that these concepts have sort of come up against the limits of their usefulness, um, and for liberation we might need to move beyond them, but that's not, a, you know, to use the, the cliche, that's not an easy ask, because they do feel, as you say, empowering and they feel emancipatory for, for, for many people. And um, so this idea, I guess, that you're asking there about reconceptualizing sexuality, this seems to me, I suppose this is what I find, you were asking sort of what this kind of meant to me, and I suppose this is one of the things that I sort of find exciting about this, and what I find exciting about engaging with these people that I hadn't engaged with, uh, someone like Marcuse, you know, when I was a child of the 90s, a general, or well, a student of the 90s, I should say, and steeped in Foucault, and, and so on. So it was really exciting to go back to this figure who had been sort of, you know, dismissed in some ways by Foucault and finding this idea central idea that you know liberation would mean sexual liberation would mean actually like getting beyond the sexual or really rethinking what we mean by the sexual and so I suppose drawing on Marcuse sexual liberation in the kind of conventional use of the phrase that we use it implies the liberating of sex or human sexuality from something from oppressive repressive controls norms, values, laws, and so on. So in that concept, in that conception of sexual liberation, sexuality is this thing that needs to be liberated. And I suppose what I'm sort of suggesting, um, building on or, or drawing on Marcuse, is actually that maybe liberation requires liberating us from sexuality. So rather than liberating sexuality from society and social controls, we need to be liberated from this thing. Or to put it in a sort of more positive way, so sexuality requires a radical rethinking, a revision of those whole spheres of human, those spheres of human experience we currently categorize under that term sexuality. So another way of putting this is that I'm arguing that to develop a radical revolutionary sexual gender politics requires a sort of transition in our thinking, our ways of conceptualizing sexuality and sexual identity. And in the book, I try and do this by kind of identifying a series of, of dualisms and arguing that we need to sort of shift our emphasis from one category to the other. So from sexuality towards what Marcuse defined as eros, from desires towards needs, from identities towards bodies, from injuries towards vulnerabilities. And we'll probably talk through some of those in, uh, later on in the conversation. So... This idea, sort of this question, sort of needs what you're saying there about moving from a conception of sexuality that's around sort of desires and towards one of those ones around sort of needs and more materialist understanding of it. Under capitalism, sexuality and labour aren't somewhere very similar. They both involve the reification of important dimensions of, of our human potential, our human needs, our sort of capacities. So dimensions of our of our humanity are kind of converted into things or objects that are hived off from us. This is a, you know, these, you know, 
the simple, it's the ladybird version of reification of labour, you know what I mean? In labour, your human potential for creativity gets kind of turned into, converted, even in your own mind as this kind of thing that stands outside of you that you go out to the market and you sell it. So you've got to, you've got to just go this strange process of something that is inherently part of you and your body and your mind and your capacities comes to feel as this thing that you can sort of sell. And so if kind of, if, if, if labour is our human capacity for creativity converted into this object that we sell and converted into this object that gets kind of narrowly restricted into the production of profit, sexuality is the human capacity and need for intimacy, love and pleasure that gets restricted into reproduction and confined to a sort of certain forms of gentle activity and reified into identities. And so in the same way that any revolutionary labour politics is about, you know, it's not about getting a better deal for the working class or getting more cultural representations for the working class. It's, you know, it's most fundamental. It's about mobilising, the more the working class mobilising to sort of abolish itself, to get rid of the very category of, of working class. In the same way, a radical sexual politics is ultimately not really about making us free to have more sex or express our sexual identities but rather abolishing those identities and liberating us from sexuality as it's currently uh, constituted. And so, as I say, to convey that idea, I draw on uh, Marcuse's distinction between sexuality and this thing that he called eros. So, eros, for Marcuse, doesn't describe, this is in his book called Eros and Civilization, which is from 1959. Eros doesn't describe a kind of liberated version of sexuality. It's a kind of it's about instead creating a whole new way of inhabiting our bodies in which the desires, the needs, the pleasures that we currently get concentrated into this thing called sexuality are kind of dispersed across the body. They inhere in all our social relations and all our activities. And a bit like liberation, what eros means is kind of difficult to articulate because it names something that we can't yet know. We can only imagine it, which is why for Marcuse, you know, art is so important um, in developing um, a, a revolutionary imagination. It's a place where you can sort of kind of imagine these things that we can't yet know. But anyway, unlike the achievement of sexual freedom within the kind of existing structures of capitalist society, I was talking about those ideas of equality and freedom, the transformation of sexuality into eros, as Marcuse describes it, will only be possible to the kind of revolutionary transformation of all social relations. So again, not just those things that we currently think of as sexual relations or personal relations. So the transformation of sexuality, the movement of sexuality into something called eros, will be one and essential for Marcuse. So this is, a, this is, I guess, this is a, this is a sort of challenging idea, sort of people on the left, conventional sort of people, or well, conventional, I suppose, you know, who would have seen this as somehow as a kind of an epiphenomenon. We started out later, kind of thing. When we've got of the when we've, the economy started out, we had to get around to all that sexuality, gender stuff. For Marcuse, absolutely not. The shift from sexuality to eros is an essential element of any transformation of capitalism into some form of democratic socialism. Okay, so this idea. So from the twentieth century, then you know, from um, you know, from feminism, from Freud, um, from all sorts of movements for social social change, we have inherited from artists and writers, you know, D.H. Lawrence and censorship and so on, or Irish writers versus censorship. We have this idea of sexuality as this kind of natural instinct, you know, born that way, 
as you were saying, as impulses, desires, libidinal energies that are kind of at the core of who we are. They're woven into the fabric of our identity. And in this view, desire is the thing that is constrained and controlled by the repressive force of society. And so sexual freedom, sexual liberation means lifting those, those, those controls. By contrast, um, somebody like Rosemary Hennessy, who you mentioned, who I write a bit about in the book, who I draw on and find very inspiring, she is trying to develop a kind of more materialist conception of human sexuality, where we don't think about sexuality in terms of sexual desire, but more broadly as part of the whole kind of human potential for sensation and affect. She adapts the phrase sex-affective energy from feminist and, and, and Ferguson that kind of adheres in all social relationships. Again, that idea of not hiving off certain, you know, certain relationships are sexual, certain not, but instead those things that we currently associate with sex and sexuality are part of a whole sort of cluster of sensations, desires, and sort of needs. So in other words, our need for love, intimacy, affection, pleasure, including some of the more kind of darker, troubling pleasures, these would form kind of one component on this elastic, contingent continuum of our needs, which would include things like, you know, our need for food, our need for shelter, our need for, you know, creative stimulation and education and so on and so on. For all these needs, sexuality is just one part, while there being some very distinctive, specific thing that is that is conceptualized in terms of desires and libido, and instead we sort of we, we, we place it on that sort of continuum of all of our needs. Needs that are um, bodily, they're essential to our survival, but they're not natural because we can only ever meet those needs in and through social relations. Okay? So, as Hennessy puts it, under capitalism, pursuit of profit is accompanied by what she calls the outlawing of human needs. So the price, i.e. some of these wages that they get paid for their work, excludes all sort of many of the sort of the needs that are kind of the kind of unnamed price of the exchange. So one form this outlawing of needs um, takes, still takes, is the sort of the gender ideology that displaces the meeting of human needs onto the domestic labour of feeding and clothing and caring, work that is marked or devalued as women's sort of natural role and therefore is not, you know, is unpaid or underpaid and is not included in the price that is paid to somebody. There's a whole, you know, range of needs there that aren't included in that kind of price. So in the same way, conceptualising sexuality as or consolidation of sexuality, those needs that come under that term, into this kind of matrix of identities, is a similar kind of reification. The, the, the human potential for sensation and affect gets kind of hardened into this thing, into this kind of forms of consciousness that kind of cohere into identity. And then whole areas of human affective potential and need are effectively, again, using the phrase, sort of outlawed or somehow sort of excluded with this focus on sexual identities and what that needs. Okay. So, in, in other words, then, I suppose why, it's, why I find this so exciting, I guess, is that by conceptualizing sexuality as need, that creates the potential for a more kind of um, universalist and revolutionary demand. We're kind of challenging the whole array, we're challenging the whole sort of system, how 
The whole array of human needs are currently outlawed and unmet under capitalism, not just focusing on this one sphere of our life that we call the sexual. No, I think that's really great. No, it does make sense because I I, I think what I'm, I'm also hearing there is a sense of that, you know, like one of the ways that capitalism works over workers is the kind of a thingification of our labor. And one mm-hmm. of the ways, that, you know, sexuality is also thingified or reified. And so often these are seen as competing interests, competing needs, you know, yes. like that there are, you know, like that they're, you know, they're separated out. But I think what you're saying is actually no, because the similar processes are working both, do you know, what I mean? and that could become, you know, the basis of a, of a solidarity. So your entry point to politics might be class politics or it might be gender politics or it might be sexuality. But we can begin to think about how with other other people. Do you mean you know, like we're all involved in this kind of process of, of thinkification? Do you know mean we're all reduced mm-hmm, in this way? Mm-hmm, and to mm-hmm. kind of think about how we can begin to kind of break down that barriers as a form of politics in multiple forms simultaneously and not just yes. in one, you know. Um I think one of the, the kind of lovely features of, of your book um is the kind of way that you read kind of like the culture around you. Um, so I have a sense of somebody who's like very curious, do you, know I mean? you know, like who's going about kind of like, you know, engaging in engaging with the culture, the material culture, the kind of cultural artifacts, the cultural practices that are going on around you and sort of thinking about them in terms of like what they can say about the broader society. So, for example, you've kind of a reading of an advert, an advert from the gay community news. You draw on the work of Joe Caslin, his murals. We're going to talk a wee bit about them later on. You've got a little piece about Colm Tobin's commentary on, 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 on Roger Casement. There's also a little discussion of a night at the theatre, a photo from the Crouch Queer Archive. So, I mean, I'm a social scientist and quite a lot of the time we, we spend our time, you know, doing interviews and sort of like, you know, carrying out surveys and sort of like getting people to kind of speak directly to the concerns that we think they have. And so you've taken a kind of a different, you know, different route here. Mm-hmm. And what would you see as the kind of particular value of this kind of approach, this kind of methodology yeah. that you've adopted in the book, where that yeah. you're sort of reading the culture in a very variegated sense for like social and political meanings and how... Yeah. And how are, how are such cultural, you know what I mean, artefacts and, and, and processes, how are they so necessary and that kind of reading of them so instructive? Grand. Um, well, thanks for the kind and generous things you said about the book there, Rosie. Um, so in, in literary studies, there's this um, uh, famous book by a great Marxist critic called Frederick Jameson. It's a very influential book. And it's called The Political Unconscious Narrative of the Social Symbolic Act. I won't go into the content of the book. I was going to stick with the title. I think the title is actually really interesting. Um, and I think, in a way, there's an analogy between what we do as literary and cultural critics and what a psychotherapist does with their patient. Um, you know, in psychotherapy, especially, well, anyway, in traditional, I suppose, Freudian psychoanalysis, I'm not sure if it's shifted or changed since, but there's a great emphasis on dreams. Dreams are a really useful route into understanding one's unconscious. You can't you know, access the unconscious directly, as it were, or consciously or through a reason, because by definition, you know, it's, you know, it's inaccessible to our conscious minds. So dreams, the dreams, our dreams are not kind of a direct or literal depiction of what's going on in our unconscious. So instead, they must be interpreted. We must use tools such as symbolism, metaphor, allegory, analogy, and so on. So, and also, of course, they're, 
it's it's a dialogue between the the analyst and the patient. It's an activity. Interpretation is an activity. It's work. It's creative. So it's not like an archaeologist kind of uncovering the meaning, uncovering the actual truth here. Instead, you're working towards creating a possible meaning, towards the possibility of some understanding. And so in that analogy, cultural artifacts are kind of, I'm using that before, very broadly, out, you know, cultural texts are, in a sense, the kind of places where our cultural dreams where the unacknowledged concerns, anxieties, contradictions, conflicts uh, find some expression, but not directly or literally. Another famous Marxist critic, um, Raymond Williams, talks about what he called the reflection theory of art. This is the idea that the art kind of is, is, is the artwork is a kind of mirror that reflects the society back to itself. Society sort of sees itself reflected in it. And Williams found that reflection theory kind of unconvincing and a bit dissatisfying, and I find him compelling on this. And one of the reasons why he says it's, un, it's, it's, un, it's, it's, it's um, dissatisfying is it kind of downplays the actual creative activity of cultural texts. They don't just reflect our society, but they actually work to shape our society. So cultural texts are sites where the kind of culture works on those naughty, unresolved ideological conflicts. And, you know, that's, I suppose, a central um, uh, idea, a central belief, I guess, in what I do. That's why that, for me, is sort of a political form of literary culture, because that's why it's important. It's where the society is sort of working through these these kind of naughty and unresolved conflicts, but in a sort of indirect, sort of symbolic or allegorical way. Now, one of the pleasures of writing the book was that I was sort of making use of the interpretive skills that I've developed as a literary critic, and I was shifting from uh, literary texts, novels the way I mostly write about, but also poetry and drama and teaching, and I was using them to, to, to sort of using those skills to think about all sorts of other cultural artifacts. Visual culture was very interesting for me to write about, but also performance. You know, I had to figure out a way <laughs> twice in the book of how to write about, you know, dance. You know, so I'm a person whose modus operandi is words, and here is, you know, something that is precisely not about words. So how do you find a way of articulating in words the potential meaning of this, of this performance, which is all about trying to communicate the thing that cannot be communicated in words? And so this was, so it was fun, and it was a different way of using those skills, kind of literary skills. I also thought it, it seemed to be appropriate to the form of the Chirac books, which are kind of reflective interventions into the contemporary moment. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a short story writer uh, um, in the kind of mid-20th century in New York called Grace Paley, and somebody asked her, why didn't she write, you know, why didn't she just write stories, not novels? And she said, life is short and writing is long. And, you know, novels are slow to write, um, and literary criticism is slow to write. It's not just that it takes a long time to do write novels, but also that um, there's a there's kind of a, a long sort of gestation period there before, before novel novelists are sort of kind of picking up on their unconscious, their sort of antennae, what's going on in the culture, and then putting it into sort of their novels. So I think, you know, I still believe that fiction, I absolutely believe that fiction and literary criticism are really great forms for thinking and engaging with your culture politically. But you're doing it from a certain kind of distance, a kind of, kind of long perspective, which, again, I think is enormously valuable. 
thought is not necessarily a good fit for responding to the moment. As I say, you know, novelists are sort of picking up on things over a kind of longer period. So that's why, in a sense, I wanted to kind of turn to these other forms, which I think seem to me productive of what I want to do in this book particularly. Um, I suppose I think maybe one other point about that. It's important for me to engage, you raised the point there of your work as a social scientist. It seemed important to me to engage with these political and conceptual questions uh, about sexuality, about politics, but as a cultural critic, that is, drawing on the specific skills of criticism. I feel sometimes that kind of politically engaged cultural critics are a bit maybe kind of embarrassed about what we do. Um, so they focus on how, going back to the reflection theory, how does the literature address specific issues? And then when they're analysing the kind of artwork and how that sort of works, that kind of gets submerged in the kind of more serious historical, sociological kind of, uh, you know, facts and theories and so on. But I guess how I feel about that is that, well, you know, a lot of money, relatively speaking, gets spent on paying me to teach and write as a literary critic. So, you know, in a sense, the least I can do is do that skillfully and properly and in some sort of politically engaged, productive way, rather than writing as if I were, you know, a sociologist or a political theorist in some sort of half-assed way that I wouldn't know what I was doing. Um, and it's also because I think, you know, we can bring, as literary critics, we can bring something sort of useful as cultural critics to political analysis and uh we can bring a sort of useful, odd way of thinking about things. And also, I suppose, finally, I think it is a great pleasure and a great privilege to be paid and have secure employment, as I do, to read about lit- to read literature, to think about literature, to write about literature, above all, to go into lectures and seminar rooms to talk with others about literature. It's fantastic. Meetings <laughs> with, with people about how you do that, not so much fun. But anyway, and it's important, I think, you know, is to remind yourself how, 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 how kind of amazing and lucky that is. But I think that also sort of brings, I think, a certain kind of responsibility. I've been given the space because I had this you know, secure job as an academic in, a, in, a, in an English literature department. I've been given the space to speculate, to try out ideas. Those ideas might be daft, they might be useless, but let's think them through. Let's see where we get. So coming back to the topics in this book, because of the job that I do, I have the leisure and I have the freedom that activists or those working for NGOs, for instance, who are you know, actually engaged politically with these issues, I have a, a kind of leisure and freedom that they don't have. They're busy doing sexual politics as it is now. But I have the space to kind of speculate about what an entirely different form of sexual politics might look like. To speculate about ideas that are, you know, you know, not as people say evidence-based. Um, but I think it's important to kind of be clear that that's what I can contribute. I have the space. I have the responsibility because I am, you know, have this sort of secure employment to do that. And I think it's much better if I do that if I approach these questions in the way that I do, the way that I'm sort of trained to do, rather than doing it in a kind of pretending, or making some sort of claims to be a political theorist, or making some claims to being an activist. The activists have to work, you know, with things as they are. I have the space to sort of speculate about how they might be. And it's important to kind of uh, be clear sort of about that. And again, sort of clear, you know, that when I'm writing this book, and questioning the limits of sexual politics as it currently is, that I'm absolutely acknowledging 
you know, I'm not, I'm not demanding that activists on the ground do the thing that I have the space to do, to speculate about things. They've got to keep going, you know, working on these issues. Yes, I really like that. I mean, I think it's, it's also, I think there's a lot of pressure on, on people from within the humanities and cultural studies to sort of to, to kind of demonstrate their relevance, their economic relevance, to sort right. of become all things to all people, you know, yeah. to show the so employability. So I sort of, re- exactly the instrumentalization of, of, of the kind of, of the, of the disciplines. And I think it's really important to kind of assert that this, what you do, has its own inherent, do you know, what I mean? you know value. It has its own kind of, it, it brings the world to light. You know, yeah. in a different way, but but nonetheless a profoundly useful way. Um, well, maybe we we'll just change gear just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. and that's maybe to just talk a little bit about the idea of marriage because that runs through the. That's a very significant theme, and I suppose yeah. because of the recent history of the referendum, it's unsurprisingly so and necessarily so. Um, and I suppose in the in the book you talk a bit about this kind of contradictory aspects, and contradiction is important, I think, across the across the entire text. Um, but you talk about how there's kind of the romantic and the hopeful and the progressive policy. Um, possibilities of marriage but then there's also that kind of conservative tendencies and it yeah. has been an extremely conservative institution and patriarchal and confining and all and domesticating and all these other things we could say about it so that there is i suppose the one hand there is kind of the marriage as the kind of you call it the term i'm going to quote here the reconciliation to the reality principle of capitalism versus marriage as an emblem of utopian possibilities. So these are like the tensions and they coexist yeah. actually. They're, it's not one or other. They, they kind of both coexist at the same time. Would you mind maybe drawing out a little bit about that and maybe talking a bit about those contradictory tendencies and how they maybe were reflected in the campaign for, for marriage equality in Ireland? Okay, yeah. Um, that's, a, a, that's a good point. And of course, I suppose you could say it was inevitable that I would sort of write about marriage, given the significance of the, the referendum in 2015. Not just, as I say, as an event in itself, but also as the kind of predominant political objective of LGBT politics for nearly you know, two decades before that. And, um, just as an aside, the story of how it came to be the kind of dominant or defining objective is itself fascinating. I, I only touch on it briefly in, rela- in the book in relation to the US. But it is worth stressing that it was never kind of inevitable for gay and lesbian liberationists and radical feminists in the 70s, it would be, you know, it would seem like some sort of defeat for their political project. Um, And it really only became a serious objective in response to the tragedy of the AIDS crisis, which is a bit troubling to kind of reflect on. Again, contradiction, this achievement that is celebrated as wholly positive, but also has roots in grief and trauma um, and something that is associated with pride has you know roots in 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 shame I guess around around sex, uh, precipitated by the trauma of AIDS. Um, and again, also I suppose, but it's important that not, not I didn't want to kind of rehearse those arguments because what was the point? I mean, LGBT activists in 2015 knew those perfectly well, and they still mobilised around this objective. So there was no point going back over and saying, "Oh my God, they're so inauthentic," and "Oh my God, they sold out to the man." How terrible. Um, <laughs> Because the point is, you've got to think about it, sort of, it's, 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 as, I say, as you were saying there, it's paradoxical and it's contradictory. And part of that contradiction, at the first, I suppose, want to say is that, uh, yeah, it's, it's about trying to think, but why did it mobilise people? Why did it mobilise people sort of so much? So yes, for some people, it's almost certain that the motivation was conservative, you know, respectability, conformity, acceptance and so on. But that clearly wasn't motivation enough. You know, 
conflict, one of the ways of putting the paradox is that marriage equality was a conservative political objective. The pursuit of that objective mobilized radical and utopian political desires and imaginaries. So it's, that's the first paradox, I guess. Revolutionary energies were mobilized for this kind of conservative or reformist objective. And as you say, one of the ways I started trying to think about that, those contradictions, is to distinguish between two meanings of marriage. So marriage as it exists, as it exists now, is that's a quotation for our an adaptation from Marcuse about the reality principle of capitalism. I won't start explaining that now because I'd struggle to it, but anyway. Um, and then marriage, the kind of utopian image of how things could be. And I remember finding this kind of really inspiring, or inspiring, exciting when I sort of thought it, when I was looking at those, at those images um, there that I talk about in the start, that image from the ad, um, which is about, uh, from GCN, the wedding issue, and it's about, you know, to prepare for your wedding, you should go and learn how to dance properly. And I thought there was something so sort of poignant about that, you know, to be more spontaneous and human and romantic and connect, you got to go and like work at it and you've got to pay money to be more spontaneous. And sometimes you capture that kind of, you know, that kind of poignantly that people, you know, what people see in marriage, what it, not people, all of us, what we find so sort of compelling emotionally about marriage. I mean, there is something there beyond just sort of conformity to social norms of the conservative things. So that was why I sort of was thinking about this idea that there is kind of two things going on at the same time. So the one, I suppose, is, is um, as I say, marriage as it is now. So, you know, it's a social ritual. It has deep roots in, in Judeo-Christian and, and post-Enlightenment bourgeois culture. It's, you know, its roots in Christianity are about, you know, uh, giving sex some sort of kind of sanctity because sex is inherently a bad thing it's inherently sinful so we have a social ritual that kind of sacramentalizes it and so on um it's also of course marriage is a legal contract again deep roots in you know pre-modern aristocratic kind of alliance and you know modern you know bourgeois property rights my students read uh, jane austen and you know we love telling them this is you think this is a love story but it's actually all about the money <laughs> um, um, and they somehow sort of go with this, but still really believe it's about the love story at the end of the day. But anyway, um, it's, it's a social institution. It's about stability of the social order. This is a very important idea, actually, in Austin. Um, and it's also, of course, as, as, as feminists um, have pointed out, it is, you know, uh, about sort of social reproduction. It, is a very, it has been a very powerful institution for privatizing, as it were, not I mean, don't mean privatizing in the conventional sense of making it, you know, a market thing, but I mean privatizing is reducing it to the sphere of the private, all the things that are needed to reproduce as human beings, um, all those things, all those forms of physical and effective work that are necessary for sustaining human life, they get sort of moved out of the sphere of work and social and into the sphere of the domestic. It's women's work and it's not even in a sense sort of work it's, 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 it facilitates marriage as a social institution facilitates it naturalizes that idea that what women do in the home isn't really work it's about you know, love not money as um as uh, Alison Phipps a feminist critic 
Okay, so that's, that's marriage as it is now. All those things, you know, all sorts of roots around in, in Christianity, around sex is sinful, contracts, uh, legal, a legal contract that is about sort of property, that is about reproduction and about social reproduction and institutionalizing the, uh, an institution for the reproduction of, 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 of sorry, for the gendered labor, I suppose. And then at the same time, you know, when people were genuinely, you know, kind of, I, I, I kind of mentioned that day after the referendum in 2015 and watching on TV and all those people at Dublin Castle, and those people were really sort of moved and excited and sort of deeply kind of, um, um, kind of emotionally invested in this. They weren't thinking about, hurrah, we finally, you know, got access to this patriarchal institution. We can now, you know, inherit property without paying tax or whatever. We, they weren't thinking about those things. So something else was going on. And how I kind of tried to explain it in the book is that marriage offers us some sort of glimpse in the present. Come back to sort of Marcuse and we can't know liberation. We can only sort of speculate about it. But why are we so invested emotionally in the idea of marriage so we sort of see there the kind of ideal of marriage, not, of course, marriage as it actually is, but the ideal of it. We get some sort of sense of how life could be, of how our human relationships could be in some sort of other alternative world. Um, we see sort of forms of human relationships in which human need, human vulnerability, human interdependence might be a kind of solvent, might dissolve that kind of self-interested individualism that is kind of, you know, that is the form of subjectivity that the dominant ideology kind of imposes on us. We see in marriage kind of some image of a kind of collective solidarity and a kind of, um, we kind of see some sort of glimpse of a kind of freedom that we can't yet know um, because of this kind of sharing this kind of vulnerability, this dependence on another person. Um, so in that way, yeah, you know, it's a bit like going back to Leo Varadkar being elected, the referendum, you know, presents a kind of complex challenge for any radical sexual politics. Difficulty is to grasp how this political objective was both progressive and conservative at the same time. That it made the society more inclusive, more pluralist, and yet it also confirmed kind of the, 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 the dominant political rationality. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think you know, the, no, no. Yeah. I think in what you're describing there as well, um, Michael, there's like a very important kind of effective dimension to it because for many people, mm. the referendum, you know, people would have been extremely ambivalent about the whole notion of marriage and, you know, might even said, oh, for God's sake, what's this? but didn't know how much they cared until it was secured. Do you know what I mean? You know, so there was yes. a sense of, and the kind of, the kind of potency of the feeling on the day of the result. Do you know what I mean? You know, like the kind of sense of possibility that hung in the air. Do you know what I mean? Like right. that was, yes. you know, like, and I think that, you know, like, you know, that it happened for lots of reasons, but there was a transformative, something transformative in, in there, yes. in that mix, you know? And it might be how do we kind of capture those transformative expressions? Absolutely, feelings, absolutely. You know? For other ends other than marriage, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, um, that's really interesting. Um, I suppose another theme in the book relates to this kind of idea of identity politics. And we've talked a little mm. bit about, about that already. 
Um, and there's a lot of people out there giving out about identity politics. I mean, you know, the kind of war on woke and there's a whole, I believe that new British TV channel is completely dedicated to kind of like attacking woke and identity politics and all its formations, except the kind of one particular variant of it. And that it's very much kind of centered around anti-feminist, anti-LGBT or anti, you know, anti-anti-racist struggles. And that comes from the right. But I suppose in your book, you're also raising some fairly important critical questions about identity politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're coming from a very different angle. And I think one of the things you highlight is how very often identity politics can get kind of trapped on its own sense of victimhood. It can get trapped yes. in its own sent, uh, sense of resentment, that, that word resentment. Um, and I think that you sort of see this as being a kind of a block on kind of solidarity, a block on the yeah. kind of category breakthroughs that you think are necessary for liberation. Um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that idea of, I suppose, resentment on the one hand, and then you, on the other hand, you seem to be saying that acknowledging our vulnerability, I mean, like leaning into our vulnerability maybe, mm-hmm. is one, one possible kind of antidote and kind of like pushback against that kind of tendency. Yes, yes. And um, uh, I suppose, yeah, as you say, well, the first point I suppose to make is that when we're putting forward any kind of radical left critique of identity politics, we have to move really cautiously. We have to ensure you know, that our critique can't be mistaken or indeed, more importantly, made usable for the right-wing reactionary critique, which is essentially vehicle for you know, racism and misogyny and homophobia generally. Or even some leftist critiques can be a bit sort of problematically sort of simplistic and, and masculinist. The, you know, oh, why are we all focusing on anti-politics? We need to focus on class, which, you know, is just, again, reproducing this idea of dividing sort of things uh, up rather than, you know, rather than arguing for bringing in the question of class as adherent to all of this. Instead, it's like, well, we must got to prioritize one over the other. And I suppose we have, as I'm saying, we have to be kind of historically minded. We've got to be kind of dialectic in developing any critique. We've got to grasp, the, as I've said already, the kind of historical necessity, the achievements of those social movements, the LGBT movement, feminist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, and so on, that got grouped under this banner of identity politics. We've also got to be alert, I suppose, to the diversity of political standpoints that can be within the same supposedly homogenous you know, movements. You know, there's a, you know, for instance, a, a very wide difference between kind of liberal feminism and radical Marxist feminism, yet they would all be grouped under identity politics or under feminism. You know, Hillary Clinton and, you know, Angela Davis could both plausibly be described as feminists, but there's, you know, huge gulf between their uh, political perspectives. You know, one is a radical Marxist, the other is a liberal imperialist warmonger. Um And, of course, it's also important to register the irony that the forms of right-wing politics which are kind of attacking, I'm sorry, the form of right-wing politics, which is all about attacking identity politics, are themselves forms of identity politics, you know? They're people who are subscribing to these reactionary positions are invariably mobilising around forms of identity, whiteness, um, national identification, masculinity, femininity for conservative women and for trans-exclusionary feminists, uh, religious affiliation and so on. So that's just another sort of point to make. And then um, now in developing kind of my kind of critique of politicized identity, she calls it, I'm drawing on Wendy Brown's states of injury. And she argues that politicized identity 
is to be understood as something that is caused by and reaction against um, this pervasive, I'm not sure how we're supposed to pronounce it, very sentiment, very sentiment, um, that Nietzsche identified, you know, as something that is intrinsic to modernity. It's this kind of fusion of powerlessness and abjection and then sort of anger kind of lashing out, precipitated by this feeling of powerlessness. The majority of us, I suppose, have so little scope to exercise kind of autonomy or control over our lives. The world that we live in is so shaped by these complex transnational structures of of, um, finance and capital. We're kind of buffeted and controlled by these global configurations of of power. We, We struggle to even comprehend them or apprehend them, let alone kind of control them. And at the same time, the kind of the dominant ideology of of capitalism and neoliberalism calls on us to be always in control, to be autonomous, to manage your life successfully. Okay, so um, if we turn, the brown sort of critique of um, progressive forms of identity politics, you know, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, liberal feminism, LGBT rights, and so on, she identifies a number of important paradoxes. So, um, Politicized identity is invariably kind of reinforces the existing ideological and social structures of the system that it sets out to change. And this is because two kind of central demands or political demands are for recognition and inclusion. So if you're seeking inclusion, well, you're seeking inclusion within something. So therefore, you're in some way sort of valuing the thing that you're seeking inclusion within. And to seek recognition, if you're seeking recognition for your identity yet your identity is founded on a shared experience of being um, a stigmatized minority, you are, as it were, by seeking recognition, you are, as it were, kind of agreeing to the continual existence of that stigma. So by pursuing a political model based on securing minority rights, rather than a kind of, rather than a universal objective of transformative change, politicized identity institutionalizes and entrenches the, um, the, the, the social processes, the discursive process, the psychic processes of objection and injury through which stigmatized identities are formed. So, for example, in exchange for legal protection from homophobic discrimination, lesbian and gay people must sort of symbolically, as it were, conform to the idea that homophobia cannot be transcended, since their identity is, in a sense, now structured around always being a potential victim of homophobia. Uh, so in seeking recognition of an identity founded on injury, you are commissioned to a conception of yourself as somehow defined by that injury. Um, and this is you know, going to be um, you know, actually an interesting political question and probably not one that anybody will really address in the next few months in Ireland as we bring in hate crime legislation, which is you know, a good thing, but there are sort of really interesting critical voices on some of the problems with hate crime legislation. But um, probably don't time to be going into that there, and I haven't um, looked at them carefully enough to articulate them, just to note that it is sort of an interesting um, example of that, about what happens when you, what's the, what's the sort of, the bargain? If your politics is structured around some sort of protection um, from injury, then you're, you're sort of placing the injury as, in some ways, constitute of, of your identity. So your entire your identity is predicated on victimhood or potential victimhood. So 
So then we can describe injury as a kind of political affect, as a cluster of emotions, feelings, sensations, which inform and shape our political perspectives and our mobilization around our goals. So we can say sort of injury is the kind of, you know, the, 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 the dominant political affect of certain forms of identity politics. So in the book, I draw on the ideas of Judith Butler to argue that a radical, revolutionary, transformative politics needs to draw on a different political affect, what she calls what I call vulnerability. So what I'm arguing following Butler is that an emotional, aesthetic, intellectual, political encounter with or a sort of reckoning with our innate vulnerability as human beings can be politically transformative. We shift our, 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 our focus from psychic processes, desires, traumas, and we shift instead towards bodies and towards needs. The scope of our political vision becomes universal rather than minoritarian. This vulnerability is a shared condition of being human. Um, following Butler, I talk about how the image of the newly born baby and the image of the person at the moment of death are very powerful encounters with this reality. This is part of, 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 of being human. And identity politics is structured around our identification with others as part of a minority, but it's a kind of aggregative sense of relationality. Mm. Here's a group of individuals who are sort of getting together, cohering together. But there's still the idea that these are sort of sovereign individual or autonomous sovereign individuals. The idea that that individual is the basic unit of society remains in place. They're just sort of got together to secure some rights for themselves as a minority. And again, we've noticed kind of the paradox that by mobilising around identity to change the system, this like central um, building block, as it were, of the system individualism is somehow kind of reinforced because, you know, it's identity based with sort of inhering in the individual. By contrast, the politics predicated on our shared vulnerability moves us towards a, kind of, a relational concept of the self rather than a separate, separative sense of the self. Relational, separative self are concepts that I'm kind of borrowing from, from feminism. So in other words, encountering our shared vulnerability is to encounter our inherent dependence on the love and labour of other people and on the ecosystem we inhabit. So vulnerability and, and dependence and interdependence are hugely, are, are, are intrinsically connected. And also to recognise vulnerability as something that is intrinsic to our human existence is itself also political. It isn't just a sort of, you know, kind of abstract metaphysical, this is a human condition, we can't do anything about it. It is instead to recognise Vulnerability is political. In the capitalist world system that we live in, the distribution of, of vulnerability, of bodily vulnerability, the degrees of exposure to violence, to exploitation, to want, it is hugely inequitable. And to recognise that we are radically dependent on the world's resources and on the labour of others is also, of course, politically to confront that in our current system, the extraction of those resources is, is you know, recklessly destructive, and the labour that we depend on is almost always alienated and very often you know, punitively exploited. So as I sort of put in the book, to think of the human body, to figure the human body as vulnerable, is kind of very powerful kind of politically. Because then vulnerability on one hand is the kind of, is the most obvious, most visceral bodily mark of capitalist exploitation. It is the sort of most literal, you know, sign of it. And at the same time, it can be the sort of most kind of 
potent visceral source of potential revolt against that. Because we sort of aware of, in a sense, we can sort of mobilize around that sort of sense of dependence and vulnerability and how capitalism, you know, how capitalism, um, how our vulnerability and our dependence on the world and on others is, you know, monetized for profit, essentially, and is directed towards the creation of profit, how our needs become a source of creating profit rather than, uh, rather than the fulfillment of those needs. Yeah. It also, I think, you know, speaks to a sort of a, a kind of a, less self-centeredness in political yeah. activism because I kind of a, I'm kind of a taking the idea that identity in some sense is already, it's assumed to be kind of preformed. It's already packaged in right. it's there already. Whereas this notion of vulnerability raises questions about, well, what's making us vulnerable? What are the forces? What are the factors? What are the contingencies with, within which we exist? And how yes. does my vulnerability how is that shared by somebody else? Or is it, you know, so there's a, the openness of that category. Um, so I suppose the final question I want to, to go through with you, and I think it, it, it kind of dovetails back on this concept of, of vulnerability, but it also brings that other effective dimension, which is that of hope. And mm. in your final chapter, you, you, you deal very explicitly with the concept of hope. Um, and I think you've been very influenced by Ernst Bloch work, Bloch's work. Um, but you also weave in some ruminations about that idea of vulnerability, because in a sense, that vulnerability slash hope is given expression for you in Joe Caslin's work, in his murals. <laughs> and I suppose I found that really exciting how, again, that kind of, and I know you were saying it's kind of maybe new to you, that kind of reading of the visual culture, but I think it works extremely well. And maybe you talk a little bit about like what the the the, the, the murals you're talking about, what they convey, and okay. why you think that is hope, and why that, and, and the kind of hope that it generates within you as somebody mm-hmm. who's committed to these kind of political questions. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I suppose they seem, the, the, Joe Castlin's murals, as I became sort of aware of them over the years, and he'd been working for quite a while before I sort of became really aware of them, but as, as I thought about them some more, um, first of all, I mean, Joe Castlin is a very sort of politically committed artist. Um, now, my argument is that, in a sense, the murals themselves kind of give shape and give expression to a kind of more radical politics than the kind of political positions he himself sometimes articulates about them. And that's sort of an interest. That was I found that sort of an interesting um, kind of gap between those two things. Um, but very sort of creative, I think. And so. I suppose the first thing to say goes back to the point that I was just making about sort of vulnerability. They are, it seems to me anyway, uh, they have been for me a really kind of potent artistic aesthetic space for encountering that condition of vulnerability in a way that makes you sort of conscious of it. Sort of art can do. Obviously, you're going around all the time, living in a vulnerable body, but somehow these art has this kind of clarifying sort of perspective that is in this kind of oddly kind of stylized encounter with vulnerability that you somehow can sort of see this thing that you inhabit all the time more clearly. And I think they're an encounter that they create the possibility for a kind of emotional and aesthetic and effective encounter with that condition of vulnerability in two ways. One is the depiction of the human body as vulnerable and as dependent. So if you sort of in the murals, there's these images of intimacy between bodies. 
So for instance, the most famous one, I guess, is the Clada Embrace, which became an important you know, symbol or important um, image during the marriage referendum. Again, that interesting idea is about how, you know, kind of reformist or reasonable, as we would consider it sort of conservative, you know, political objective, is sort of tied in with these kind of more radical possibilities of energies. So there's the images of intimacy between bodies. There's a sort of strange, enigmatic, enigmatic sort of gazes of these figures, you know, for what they're sort of thinking. But they're, they kind of invite contemplation. They invite speculation. They're not giving you the meaning. They're inviting you sort of think about it. They're kind of, they have this kind of strange, weird sort of silence about them, which is sort of so important in the sort of the frenzy of kind of the modern uh, world and the modern kind of, kind of media scape that we landscape that we all um, inhabit. Um, the bodies are often kind of composed in odd, distorted positions, partly because of the scale, they sort of sort of look odd. So you become very aware of the body. Because the bodies are they're human bodies, but because of the strange scale, they look sort of slightly odd and they're sort of elongated and so on. And also, of course, also bodies that are depicted as being dependent on each other, bodies physically supporting each other. This image of two men uh, sort of, kind of, you know, holding each other, supporting each other, where, you know, in a sense, they, they're both supporting each other. Or there's the the, uh, the mural in, in Waterford, or Ska, or the, he named or Ska Kela, of Aron Nguina, we believe protected under each other's shadow, I think is the translation. So it's of a male figure that is being held up by these kind of disembodied human arms that are extending from the origins of the mural. So it's a literal kind of depiction of the human body is dependent. And I pay particular attention, I suppose, to his use of male bodies, um, and he's figuring that male bodies as vulnerable. And one of the various reasons why that seems to me like culturally and politically really important is because our visual culture is so saturated with images of male uh, bodies as muscled and as invulnerable. So much so that I think that those images of the male body serve not only, not just, or not only as sort of ideals of masculinity being projected to actual men, but indeed to everybody as sort of ideal images of subjectivity as such, that in a sense of neoliberal ideology, we're all expected to somehow embody, not just, not physically, but sort of psychically, as it were, and, and politically, that kind of invulnerability, that kind of aggressive competitiveness that gets kind of embodied in, for instance, the sort of male sports stars. And this, of course, runs entirely, you know, I mean, we all know that, of course, these actual men who are depicted, who, you know, are, you know, struggle psychically and struggle physically to create these bodies. So they're not in any way invulnerable. But there are sort of images of invulnerability that we are all in some way supposed to kind of inhabit or, 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 or um, live out. So the bodies are depicted in various stages of kind of states of vulnerability. But then also the murals kind of create this kind of stylized encounters with our own vulnerability because they are sort of huge and startling in scale. You start standing there and you feel kind of discombobulated. You become aware as well of your own kind of smallness and vulnerability. And also, of course, we're startled by them because they appear suddenly in the street. They're not, um, you know, in the expected uh, space of the gallery. Which is also another reason they're interesting, because they can't be commodified, they can't be monetized by the, by the art market, which is, again, I think a sign of sort of hope. Here's a possibility of something that can't be somehow captured by the market. The other reason that I think why, why, why I, I find them sort of really interesting uh, 
as artworks and also as artworks to sort of think with about these things. Because back to that idea of hope and sort of Bloch's idea, artist Bloch's idea of hope. And central to the, first of all, as I said earlier, hope is, you know, indispensable for any radical revolutionary imagination. And as Bloch points out, a different understanding or experience of feeling of time than the kind of linear progressive time of capitalism is essential. You've got to have some sort of sense of the future is open and you've got to have some sense of the future, of the past as, 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 as this kind of, of reservoir, as it were, of kind of ideas and images that you might draw on for imagining the future differently. And I think Joe Kazan's murals really kind of create that sense of time. They create a sense of time is open rather than closed, which again, the kind of linear progressive time, which again, identity politics kind of does sort of, you know, um, kind of conform to, in a sense, we're making sort of progress. And there is a sort of sense, of course, we've, you know, achieved this amount, we've sort of achieved progress, we've achieved quality. So that openness of time, rather than sense of time is closed, that sense of history is potentiality is possibility. It's there in various ways in, uh, in um, the work. It's there in the imagery. So his style, the motifs often carry allusions to all sorts of kind of worldviews, I suppose, that are now outmoded, archaic, often very vexed and troubling ones. So, you know, an obvious one being Christianity and Catholicism, which is incredibly sort of vexed and troubling part of our sort of heritage right now in contemporary Ireland. Um, and yet here is this artist who is clearly, you know, Republican, secular in his political perspectives. And then there's these kind of allusions to the history of art. For instance, the Waterford um, mural, Arskakela of Arnaguina, you know, draws on the history of uh, crucifixion. And, you know, there's Irish nationalism, again, of ex-history and his volunteers. There's German expressionism, airy Soviet-era social realism, you know, depicting ordinary people in these kind of heroic... So the idea is that the ordinary people are kind of the agents of history in kind of those early Soviet um, social realist kind of, you know, uh, um, cinema and, and posters and so on. You know, some person going out with their sickle to cut the wheat is, you know, a kind of heroic figure. And they're also, you know, this openness of time, this open temporality, this fluidity of time is kind of literally woven into their fabric. They are transient. They decompose over, that's how they're made. They decompose over time. They disappear. So they're kind of an interesting, also just a sense of openness of time, but also goes an interesting reminder of kind of leaving, you know, no sort of footprints or kind of interesting ecological reminder of how to live as well. And interestingly, the one mural that has remained in place the longest is still there. The one in Waterford called or Scott, Kayla and Martin Marina. The only reason it's still there is, in a sense, interestingly, is because of a failure of the capitalist property market. The building uh, has not been demolished and redeveloped as was planned. It was only the, the mural, which is enormous. So it's this huge building on the hill over Waterford um, uh, train station, railway station, looking down, gazing down on the city. Can't, can't escape from it. And across this huge building is this huge mural of a male body kind of in this position of sort of dependence on somebody else. And it's still there. And why is it still there? Because capitalism, our property market is so widely dysfunctional. So it's a bit, it becomes, it's kind of a bit like 
Shelley's sort of Aussiemandius, you know, this huge kind of thing, like mocking the pretensions and hubris of capitalism just sort of by being there and being so kind of enormous and surviving because capitalism failed to get rid of it. Yeah, so yeah, there are some of my, I guess, reasons and thinking why, why I find Johansson's neurons. I think it's a really good place to leave it, thinking about the failures of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, how, and how not everything is successfully commodified or marketized. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you've enjoyed the opportunity to talk about your book. And I think in October it'll be available, it'll be you know on the yeah. shelves. And, I, and as I said earlier, I really encourage everybody to read it and to engage with it, because it is a beautiful piece of work. And we're delighted to include it as part of the Shirok series and this discussion as part of the, the Muscle series as well. So thank you so much.